When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And when Congress passes it, I'll sign it in January, 50 years after Roe was first decided the law of the land. The Republican spin is that voters only care about inflation. But what does the massive early voting tell us about reproductive rights as a motivating factor in this election. Plus, the dramatic debate moments from last night in Ohio, Utah, and Georgia, as Democrats hold Republicans accountable for Trump's big lie. And the scourge of dark money in our elections, and why Republicans are fighting so hard to prevent the exposure of their wealthy, dark money donors. We begin tonight with President Biden's message to young voters. Biden is seeking to call up- I want you to remember, that the final say does not rest in the court now. It does not rest with extremist Republicans in Congress. And finally say, finally say about your right to choose that it rests with you. And if you do your part and vote, Democratic leaders in Congress, I promise you, will do our part. Biden is seeking to call up an army of young voters for a simple reason. Because when younger Americans vote in large numbers, Democrats do well. Voters aged 18 to 29 played a key role in the 2020 election, with 50 percent of them turning out. And while which, OK, that's just half. It was a stunning 11 point increase from 2016 and the highest rate of young voter participation in any election since the voting age was lowered to 18 in 1971. Now, unfortunately, young voters tend to be dismissed by pollsters because they don't fit the model of who would actually turn out the likely voters. But lately, we've been getting a lot of those polls or snapshots or attitudes coming our way. And sometimes it is a little bit hard to make sense of them all. Take, for example, polls from Fox News, and The New York Times and Siena College, all taken during about the same time. Well, the exact same time, but saying opposite things. Now, if you look at Fox News, Democrats have a three point advantage on the generic congressional ballot. If you look at The New York Times and Siena College poll, Republicans have a four point advantage. And if you look at the most recent morning consult poll, Democrats, ta-da, three-point advantage. Now, one of these things is not like the other. All we can say for sure, with all those numbers just coming at us, is that things are close, very close. But what you have to remember is that these polls aren't the answer. They aren't telling you what will happen. They are a snapshot of what could happen based on the way a representative slice of people said during a given three- or four-day period. You know what we do not need to speculate about? The voting that is already underway. 2022 is already on track to be a record-breaking midterm election. Just look at Georgia, where early voting started yesterday. The Secretary of State's office announced that more than 131,000 people have already cast their ballots. That is an 85% increase from the last midterm and just a couple thousand votes shy of the first day of voting in the 2020 general election. Now, to borrow a Biden colloquialism, that is a BFD. 
There are more than two dozen states where early voting is underway right now, with more states starting later this week. According to data analyzed by the University of Florida's election project, more than three million people have already voted. And in states that track party affiliation, more Democrats have voted early than Republicans. It's also important to remember that we have already held a few elections since the Dobbs decision on abortion. Kansas voters turned out in record numbers and delivered a resounding victory for abortion rights, which was mostly fueled by an uptick of new voters, almost three quarters of them women. Then there was New York's 19th congressional district, which was won by Democrat Pat Ryan. A number of polls were released prior to that special election, and none, not one, had the Democrat ahead. And not a single poll had anticipated the seven-point gender gap. Joining me now is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. And, and Karine, I have to ask you this. Um, great to see you, as always. Great to see I you. Wonder, so President Biden came out and he made this speech today talking about what you know, the White House's policy and plans would be if Democrats give, you know, regain or will increase their margins in the United States Senate and hold the House. But I wonder how the White House is thinking about abortion in this election. Is it seen as a motivator? Is it seen as something that frightens voters to the polls? And who is he targeting with that message of what the administration would do? So, Joy, thank you so much for having me. It's always it's always a joy, joy to be <laughs> to be joining you uh, in the evening. But I want to be really careful because of the Hatch Act. I can't speak to elections. I can't speak to uh, politics uh, from here, especially standing in front of the White House. But what I will say is, and the president has been very clear. You you heard him uh, to. to speak directly to the American people. You've heard him say the pretty much the same message every time he has talked about this issue, which is Americans need to make their voices heard. We know, we know this joy that majority of Americans did not agree, disagreed with with the uh, with SCOTUS decision, unconscionable decision to to take away Roe. And so we have seen that in polling after polling after polling. The president has been very clear in order to restore that right, in order to make sure that we codify Roe, people have to get out there and you have and he's asking uh, for Americans to give them a to give Give him a Congress to make sure that we protect women's health. And that you've heard from him over and over again when he talks about protecting women's health care, protecting uh, uh, reproductive rights. And you'll continue to hear that from him. It's so weird when, like, a White House official cares about the Hatch Act. Like, we had four years where nobody actually cared about that. So it just, like, it didn't even work, work in my brain. I'm like, she cares about the Hatch Act. Like, who are these people? We do. Oh, we care. We care. Unlike, the unlike the last administration, we do care uh, about the Hatch Act here. <laughs> it's refreshing and weird. Uh, let, let me ask you this about the—, the you and I both know, and you've worked on campaigns, my friend. We worked on the same one. You're at a much higher level than me. <laughs> Democrats are always freaking out. Like, Democrats is what they do, right? Democrats' thing is to freak out. I wonder inside the White House, because y'all are Democrats, what is the level of pessimism versus optimism about the way— it, not, not getting into Hatch Act issues, but how yeah. optimistic or pessimistic is the administration and is the president when it comes to this election? So, first of all, everyone's role is big on a campaign, Joy. So just want to make sure that I make that very, very clear. Um, everyone's important in that in that regard. Look, 
What the president is trying to do is trying to send a very clear message uh, to the American people that there are critical choices in front of them. There is so much at stake right now. And if you look at what congressional uh, Democrats are putting forward, they are trying to deal with economy, right? They're trying to deal with inflation. We put forward and pass into law the Inflation Reduction Act, right, which is going to help 13 million people with their health care premiums, which is going to help our seniors cap uh, their costs on prescription drugs are $2,000 a year. Remember, seniors normally pay thousands and thousands of dollars a month. It is an investment in, to fight it for our climate change and really lowering costs and energy costs. What you have congressional Republicans trying to do, they're saying that they will repeal all of that, that they want to take that away. They want to take away, uh, they want to take away lowering costs on health care. They want to take away lowering costs on, on energy be, because of their special of the wealthy special interest. They've been very clear about this. And not only that, they want to take it a step further and put Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block. So you put that together with what's happening with these national abortion bans coming out of the Republicans in the Senate. And the, the president says this all the time. When if there is a national ban on abortion, just think about this, Joy. It doesn't matter if you live in a red state. It doesn't matter if you live in a blue state. It will abortion will be illegal across the country. This is taking away people's freedoms, taking away people's rights, women's rights. And that is what we're talking about. So that's well, the message that the president wants to send well, very well, loud and clear. But very quickly before we go, because you didn't answer my question. You're, there, uh, yeah. you're good. You're good at what you do, but you didn't answer my question. Optimistic or pessimistic? Really quickly. We got to have optimism. We have to okay. have optimism. We do. Okay. We have to know that there is going to be a better day and that we are doing the work that every day for the American people to make their lives better. So we have to be optimistic. The White House Press Secretary, the great Karine Jean-Pierre, thank you very much. Appreciate thank you. it. Thank you so thank much, you. Joy. All right. Let me turn now uh, to Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist and president of the New Democrat Network. I was talking to you about this very same thing beforehand, yeah. is that you do have Democrats are pessimistic by nature, <laughs> and I think it's because Democrats are empathetic, and so they think, oh, God, it's all, it's, all is lost. Yep. Like, that's what Democrats do, especially as we get close to an election. Yep. You were tweeting out today about how that might be a bit of balderdash, like Democrats might be prematurely sort of de dooming themselves, yep. and that the media might be. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Listen, I'm very optimistic about this election. I mean, six months ago, if you had told us that we would be leading to keep the Senate and we're in a toss-up race in the House, we would have been joyful, right? This would have been something we all would have been excited about. And I think that's where the race is right now. We've got a real shot here to keep both chambers. We've got to do the work and work hard and end strong. And I think that, you know, what Joe Biden did today is helpful because I do think that what abortion is not just— for the people who've been directly impacted by the ending of Roe, but it's also, I think, become a gateway for to remind voters, the anti-MAGA majority that voted in such large numbers in the last two elections, about why they didn't vote for Republicans the last two times. It's the symbol of their radicalization and their extremism. You heard the president use the term yeah. extremist Republican. I was in Las Vegas last week, and I met with the Cortez Masto campaign uh, in Nevada, and they said that when they go door to door, the issue that is burning more than anything else is abortion. And when they and when they get when people say, "Is she pro-choice?" If she's pro-choice, they say, I'm "For her, the door shuts. Yeah. It's over. Go on and go with other people." So this is this. We've got to both, though. I think in our closing, to indict the Republicans for being extremists, 
and continue to make the case for how we've made the country better. We can do both. You know, the, the Cortez Massa race is interesting because it's been one of the ones that the media sort of doom scrolling yeah. and they're saying, oh, that's over. Laxalt's going to win. Yeah. And, and I, I think about it, I think, first of all, the polls, I mean, look, we'll throw up one poll, the morning yeah. consult poll. It has Democrats yeah. more enthusiastic than Republicans. I, I don't know what any of it means anymore right. because every person I know of who's either an independent or a Democrat is hopping mad about abortion. Yeah. It's all that they talk about because they think, I'm not sending my kid to a Southern state where they got to go to school or to spring break in Florida. God forbid the worst happened to them. They get pregnant or they get raped. Something bad happens. I don't want to be caught in that situation. A lot of men who feel that way, too. That, to me, doesn't poll. You don't ca- capture it in a poll. Talk about that and about the younger voters, because yep. younger voters are very hard to poll. Yep. And I feel like if you just isolated them, even in the Siena poll, if it was just young voters in that Siena poll, Democrats would win. But it's the it's Generation X, unfortunately, and some of the yeah, older voters I mean, that change. We, we have lots of data to evaluate yeah. politics and elections. And the most important data is how people vote. Yes. More important than polling. And as you said in your introduction, you know, we had five House specials since Roe ended. And our average margin above 2020 was seven points. We outperformed our 2020 numbers by seven points in those five yeah. races. In Kansas, it was even more. So that's a that's a clear example of how motivated people are. And as you mentioned, the morning consult poll, not only did they show Democrat find Democrats five points more uh, enthusiastic to vote, but the number was rising and growing. Yeah. Right. And as we saw in Georgia last night, people people are fired up and ready to go. I mean, this is going to be a high turnout election on yeah. both sides. Yeah. And, you know, we know the Republicans are motivated, but the media has painted this picture that somehow Democrats aren't motivated. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. Where the Democrats are highly motivated. Our candidates have much more money than the Republican candidates do because of the grassroots of the Democratic Party and how engaged they've been. And I think the sign that we saw in Georgia last last night and yesterday is a great sign uh, for how that we could see a, a record turnout in this election. Let's talk about and high turnout, by the way, benefits us. Well, and, and right. High turnout elections are almost always Democrats do well. Yeah. Republicans tend to do well in low turnout elections. Yeah. And it's usually older, whiter voters that vote for them. Georgia is, is interesting to me yeah. because what I'm hearing on the ground from folks is that it puts the lie to the idea that. Democrats aren't interested and that black voters aren't voting because there is this narrative that people are trying to put out that black voters aren't interested. But what I'm hearing on the ground is that black voters are in that really huge surge of early voters. And it is Democrats who tend to vote early Republicans. We actually have data on this. I mean, the, the black vote is up in the first day from 2018 and 2020. Higher, a percent, a higher percentage yeah. of the elect, electorate, which means that yes, black voters are motivated in Georgia right now. Yeah, and so I, listen, I just think this is a, a jump ball election. I mean, we just got to do everything we can here. We got to stop working. The polls have gotten crazy. Yeah, right? it's just gotten crazy. You did a great job in the introduction. Is that a majority? I want to make sure the viewers know a majority of the polls in the last ten days have us up two, three, four points. Right, right. But and, the media says that means we're that means Democrats are going to lose. It but, means if you're up, that means you're losing. Yeah, right. And the conventional <laughs> wisdom is if. If we're up two to three, we have a shot at keeping the House. And yeah. if you look at the CBS uh, model, right, we're at 214 in the House. The Fox poll a few weeks ago had us keeping the House. Yeah. Right? So it just means that we know we're in the hunt here. Yeah. We've got to stay upbeat and optimistic. Yeah. And we've got to go fight like and hell. And it's a turnout game. At this yep. point, having worked in, in a couple elections, I'm telling you, all that matters now is turnout. Uh, Simon Rosenberg, yep. brilliant. And worked for the great uh, Sergio Ben Dixon, yep. as did our friend uh, our friend Fernando Mondi. Yep. So Thank you, we know Joy. that you're the best. Thank you very much, man. Keep up the good work. Cheers. All okay. right. Coming up, uh, the battle over women's rights and reproductive rights. It is the focus of shouting 
Counting Down Midnight, the first installment in the new documentary series, The Turning Point, from executive producer Trevor Noah. The film shines a light on former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis, who stood up against her state's 2013 restrictive abortion bill. Shouting Down Midnight airs Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC. And up next on The Readout, the aftermath of a big debate where Republican candidates were called out for their fraudulent election denial. Stay with us. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I have to have conversations with the entirety of Georgia. I don't have the luxury of being a part of a good old boys club where we don't focus on the needs of our people. If I may, I mean, J.D., you keep talking about Nancy Pelosi. If you want to run against Nancy Pelosi, move back to San Francisco and run against Nancy Pelosi. You're running against me. Ouch. Plenty of fireworks at debates with the midterm elections now just three short weeks away. A battle of candidates who believe in democracy versus MAGA Republicans. Now, first up, Ohio Senate race where Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan once again shut down MAGA hedge funder J.D. Vance. You were calling Trump America's Hitler. Then you kissed his ass. That's not true. It is true. And then you kissed his ass. And then he endorsed you. And you said he's the greatest president of all time. And look, it's nothing personal. I'm just telling you, like, I've been in this business. It's tough business. If you think you're going to help Ohio, you're not. If you can't even stand up for yourself, how are you going to stand up for the people of the state? In Utah, independent U.S. Senate candidate Evan McMullen just literally torched incumbent Republican Mike Lee. For you to talk about the importance of the, le- the Electoral College, I think, is rich. I think you, you know exactly how important it is. And I think you knew how important it was when you sought to urge the White House that had lost an election to find fake electors to overturn the will of the people. Senator Lee, that was the most egregious betrayal of our nation's constitution in its history by a U.S. senator, I believe, and it will be your legacy. You were there to stand up for our, converse, for our constitution, but when the barbarians were at the gate, you were happy to let them in. There were people who behaved very badly on that day. I was not one of them. I was one of the people trying to dismantle this situation, trying to stop it from happening, because I believe in this document, Senator Lee has been doing this thing with his pocket constitution for the last several years. Senator Lee, it is not a prop. It is not a prop. Oh, you treat his pocket constitution like it was a fake badge. Okay, but it's not just Georgia Senate races. It's not just Senate races. In Georgia, Democratic congressional candidate Marcus Flowers, well, he straight up called out QAnon Congressman Marjorie Taylor, future former Mrs. Green. 
Did Joe Biden win the election, Congresswoman Green? Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Absolutely. Marcus. But you pushed a big lie that said he did not win the election. There was and election fraud. You drove those proven. people to the Capitol fraud. on January 6th with your lie. We're going to move on. Josh Rowe, it's election your turn fraud. to ask and my the husband has Marjorie proof of it. Joining me now is Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DCCC and the DNC and contributor to the Los Angeles Times and USA Today. I mean, it was a smoker last night. Uh, let, let me do one more because uh, J.D. Vance just keeps getting the business uh, from <laughs> Tim, Ryan. Tim Ryan is something else. Here he is calling out J.D. Vance when he lied and tried to say he never said that Alex Jones is a more credible source of news than our very own beloved Rachel Maddow. Uh, here's Tim Ryan giving him the business. We are running for the United States Senate. This is the highest office you could get in this country except for president. And he's running around backing these extremists, the most extreme people in the country, a guy who denied Sandy Hook. He's like, no, he's credible. Thank you, Congressman. I mean, you don't have to, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's maddening. This is a complete fabrication. I never JD, said you're on that tape, tape, brother. We can talk about, you know, how I got in hot water with, with uh, my, my, uh, with saying that Alex Jones was a more credible source of information than Rachel Maddow. But like one of the things that I saw in the reaction to that tweet was people are terrified of unconventional people. Mr. Bardella, your witness. Unconventional people. Uh, boy, I bet, I bet Alex is going to be hitting them up for some money soon because I think he's got a billion dollars worth of uh, legal bills he's going to have to pay out soon. It, I mean, it, come on. The thing about it is, is that the, the, the incentives in the primary process for Republicans are to run as far to the MAGA right as they can. But then they own that when they have to run in the general election. So now J.D. Vance, who wants to be super MAGA and wants to be like, Alex Jones is the best and women should stay in abusive relationships. It doesn't matter if you're getting punched out, you need to have the baby. Now he wants to say, uh, yeah, I, I agree with abortion exceptions. I, 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 you know, well, here he is on abortion. Here's J.D. Vance. Uh, an incest exception looks different at three weeks of pregnancy versus 39 weeks of pregnancy. So I actually don't think that you can say on a debate stage every single thing that you're going to vote for when it comes to an abortion piece of legislation. My principles here are I want to save as many lives as possible, and I'd love to get us to a country where young women don't feel pressured by boyfriends, by family to have abortions, where adoption services are available, <clears throat> and where young women can get access to the health care that they need to have babies. They need to have babies. A, a 39 week abortions. That is not a thing. Abortion. Pregnancies normally last 41, 42 weeks. Yeah. The idea that Republicans keep putting up that somehow women are getting to 39 weeks, which is like three weeks or two weeks, or maybe even one week before they're having a baby and be like, eh, I, I mean, think I'm going to have an abortion. It is ridiculous, but they keep saying it. But they keep saying it because no one stops them or calls them out. Well, I mean, the one thing we've seen during the abortion debate that's unfolded is that most of these white Republican men have no idea how a baby's actually do made. Do they even know how to make a baby? Like, I don't think they no do. No idea what and they're he talking has kids. about. Uh, you know, and, and I'd love to see what his take is on Herschel Walker, by the way, talking about paying for abortions out there. Uh, be that as it may, Tim, Tim Ryan, though, I think I have to say, has put on a clinic in yeah, terms of how to debate, yeah, how to yeah. deal with these moderate Republicans, how to expose these moderate Republicans, like you said, who in the primary, they're all about Donald Trump. The minute the primary ends, they're scrubbing their websites, they're changing their plans, they're trying to do everything they can to pretend like that primary didn't happen. And Tim Ryan's having none of it, and that is the playbook for how every Democrat running across the board should be running their campaigns. The, the, here's the thing. He is doing an excellent job. I think he is running the, be the best campaign in the country, to be honest with you. I think that the race in Utah against Mike Lee, Evan McMullen running an excellent campaign, um, 
Um, but both in both of those cases, and in the case of, of Cortez Masto, who's ahead in some in many of the polls are tied. The conventional wisdom is they're all going to lose. Right. That no matter what Tim Ryan does, no matter how much he dog walks J.D. Vance, there's no way to win. I don't understand that because there's a Democratic senator in place right now in Ohio. Democrats can win because Sherrod Brown does. What do you think is behind this conventional wisdom that these candidates who are running really solid campaigns, they're just written off as they can't win? You know what I hate about conventional wisdom? It's wrong so often, particularly in Washington, D.C. The amount of times that we have seen conventional wisdom tell us that something was going to happen and the exact opposite is exhaustive at this point. They are so afraid, the media beltway crowd, to, to, to actually take a stand and put themselves out there, make a prediction that getting it wrong, they're afraid of that blowback and of looking like they've lost credibility. So it's like herd mentality at this point. Yeah. And they have no idea what's going to happen on election night, frankly. Yeah. And, and I think that we're going to get to election night, and there's going to be a ton of surprise, just like there has been in almost every election night now since 2016. Yeah. They've, the convention wisdom has never held. Why are we expecting this to be any different? Well, they, they're going by history. And I think the other thing is, you having been previously been a, Republic, a Republican, you know that Republicans are always optimistic and think we're never going to lose. I've never met a Republican who said they were going to lose. Every Democrat I know thinks they're always going to lose. But then you look at the polls here, too, where people are saying that they're comfortable. They're, they're telling pollsters in this New York Times-Siena poll, which is what's freaking out most Democrats right now, that even 12 percent of Democrats are saying, oh, we're comfortable voting for an election denier. None of that matters to people who actually run campaigns. All that matters is who's voting. Which, what are you hearing on the ground in terms of, because what I'm hearing is younger people, people of color, Asian Americans, African Americans, younger people are voting and that women are voting like crazy. And when you see some of the turnout numbers, and you talked about this earlier in the show, the massive turnout we're seeing already in early voting that dwarfs what we saw. In that tells me intuitively something's happening there on the ground that the pollsters and the punditry. And that's the, the only poll that matters. Like that's, that, we always say the only poll that matters is the one conducted on election day or when voting starts. And yeah. we are winning that right now. And I believe that's going to keep holding. I think that there's so much that's going to happen that doesn't show up in these polls, that doesn't show up in the mainstream media chatter. And people are going to be wondering, oh, my God, we never saw it coming. Look at the voting numbers right now. You can see that coming right now. Right. And it's hard to, you know, and we have to bring it to an end, but it is very difficult to do prognosticate what's going to happen in an election because humans are so unpredictable. You don't know what's going to motivate them day in and day out. But here's the thing. The day after some of these debates, people can vote right then and there. So their snap decision, like the one they gave the pollster, they can make the snap decision actually right. at the polls. Well, and here's what we do know. We had elections so far in Alaska, New York, Kansas, and each one of those our turnout was through the freaking roof. Our enthusiasm was through the roof. None of that was picked up in polling beforehand. Right. That, that's the only hard data we actually have in terms of elections after Roe yeah. was overturned. And two things drive voters, enthusiasm and excitement, anger. And right. what I'm seeing and hearing out there is anger about the thing we talked to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Eric Swalwell about last night, abortion. Yep. Uh, Kurt Bardell, thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. Up next on The Readout, record-setting early voting, as we just mentioned, is one very positive sign for Democrats in this critical election midterm, election season. Another is the historic, historic year of black women candidates. And they are all over the ballot. And we're going to talk about that next. It's Monday, everyone.
everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Black women are one of the most powerful voting blocks in the country because of our high rates of voter participation and because well over 90% of black women vote as a block. And yet, black women are grossly underrepresented in our current political landscape. There are currently no, zero, zip, none, no black women in the United States Senate since Kamala Harris's ascension to the vice presidency. While several states have still never elected a black woman representative to Congress, and no state has ever elected a black woman governor. But all of that could change this year, as a historic number of black women are running in competitive races in what could be a barrier-breaking midterm election. NBC's Yamish Alcindor sat down with some of these women. We're doing what we've always done for this nation, and that's rise up to make a difference. We are enduring, and, and we can get through anything, and we can do anything. Black women have always been capable of leading. They are black women chasing history. A record number of candidates this year hoping to shatter double-pane glass ceilings and overcome challenges related to race and gender. In Florida, Democrat Val Demings, if elected, would be just the third black woman senator. There are currently no black women serving in the U.S. Senate. What's the significance of that? It should reflect the diversity of America. When we think about the talent, the skills, the strength of black women, we bring not only diversity in terms of our ethnic background, but we bring a diversity of perspectives and experiences. She's in an uphill battle to defeat Republican Senator Marco Rubio. Are you guys ready to win in November? And argues she would work to protect abortion rights, provide adequate policing for communities, and make investments in education. We need to hold America to its promise in addressing some of the social ills that cause decay in communities in the first place. Black women make up a small number of elected officials. Vice President Kamala Harris, the highest ranking. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. But now a historic number of them are running for national office. 56 women seeking House seats, four running for U.S. Senate, and three running for governor. Among them, Democrats Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Deidre Jajir in Iowa both facing tough odds to become the first black woman elected governor. And black women are often called the, the, the heart of the Democratic Party. What do you want to see in their roles in terms of change, in terms of more support when it comes to running for office? What I would like for people to consider when they're trying to support communities of color and black women in running for office is that this is not a bet. This is a commitment. And while the majority of black women running are Democrats, there has been an increase in diversity in the Republican Party, too. 
GOP candidate Tamika Hamilton, who is running for Congress in Sacramento, California, is thinking about all of the people who blazed the trail for her and others. I am a candidate for the presidency of the United States. You know, our ancestors did not go through what they went through for us to give up. What's your message to black women who may be watching this saying, I'm, I'm inspired, but I'm also nervous. Keep going. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. Don't let your fears try to tell you you can't do it. Don't stop. And joining me now is the great Yemi Shalcindor, NBC News Washington correspondent and moderator of Washington Week on PBS uh, and a hero of the journalism game, my sister. Thank so you. Let, let me ask you this, and we're going to just go ahead and put it up on stage. This is the, on, on the screen. Val Deming, Sherry Beasley, Natalie James, and Christy Math, Crystal Matthews are all running for United States Senate, Florida, North Carolina, Arkansas, South Carolina. And then in Georgia, Iowa, and Alabama, Stacey Abrams, Deirdre DeGier, and Yolanda Flowers running for governor. Black women, Democrats could not win without black women. Let's just be clear. Black women turn out at 96% for Democrats and vote at the highest percentage rate of any group of Americans. Yep. But I wonder if the presence of a black woman candidate for statewide office is impacting black women's enthusiasm. And actually, is that just marginal because it's already high? It's a great question. I think it's in somewhat way, in some ways marginal because black women are already really hitting the top numbers when it comes to voter turnout, yeah. when it comes to enthusiasm. And also black women, when I talk to them, they're used to showing up for a party at times, like the Democrats at times, that don't have them on the ballot. So when yeah. I talk to these women and voters, they say we love this, what they call a movement of black women showing up and running for office. But they're also saying, well, at the end of the day, is it really going to help Val Demings make that little de- bit of difference, those two or three percent to beat Marco Rubio? I'm not sure. What I can tell you is in talking to these candidates, this this double paying glass ceiling that I described, this, this twin challenge of misogyny and racism that black women face and when they're running for office is real. You have people who doubt black women, voters who say, are we going to actually get a black woman who's going to be a governor of a state? They know that, and that impacts money, that impacts the, the millions and millions of dollars that you need to actually run successfully in this country. Yeah. And then there's the racism, right? We have to talk about the fact, when you think about someone like Kamala Harris, she faced birtherism 2.0. We talk a lot about President Obama, but there are people saying this woman who is an American citizen, yeah. but who has Jamaican and Indian ancestry, is she eligible? to be the VP. And even in Iowa, I had some critics who said Governor um, Kim Reynolds, who is running in Iowa, the current Iowa governor, she's running ads against Deidre Dezier, who's the black woman running against her. But they're featuring Cori Bush talking about defunding the police. So there are some who are saying, OK, if you're going to attack a black woman, why are you using another black woman to do that? So there are people that are looking at it and saying black women also face the sort of unique challenge of being lumped together, right. of, of having racially charged ads going after them. So there's all that going on. Yeah. But it's a good question. And for black voters in general, particularly younger voters and black male voters, because there is that sort of you know, and I don't know that it's true because most black men also vote for Democrats. But is there an impact for black male voters real quick? It's a it's a great question. That's where black men. Um, that's where the Democratic Party definitely needs to do their most work. Yeah. Black men are not turning out the numbers that Democrats would want them to. Yeah. And then you have the sort of Kanye West factor, which is that you have oh. some black men that are more interested in the sort of power and the, and the message of Trump and sort of the idea of this sort of machismo that's taken over at times in the GOP party. So you have some black men who are more conservative than black women. And that's impact. Democrats' ability to win as well. Yeah, but I will I will note that when people make that criticism of black men, black men still overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. vote for Democrats. We're talking, you know, 89, 90%, which is a lot. Uh, but anyway, it, it is still a thing people talk about. You mean Shelsea Thank you very much, my sister. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, coming up next. Today's ultra-conservative Supreme Court is the direct result of a decades-long campaign fueled by dark money. So we are pulling out the big guns here, and I'm going to talk to one of the most knowledgeable people that I know on the subject of dark money. Stay right there. 
Today, the U.S. Supreme Court announced the dates for oral arguments in its December session, which includes a case that could threaten our democracy and the very idea of free and fair elections as we know them. The case, Moore v. Harper, could ultimately grant state legislatures unconditional control over federal elections with no possible interference from state courts, meaning Republican-controlled state legislatures could pass voter restrictions and voter restriction measures and gerrymandered state maps with impunity. We've already seen unprecedented rulings from the Supreme Court, including the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has been ringing the alarm bells for years over not just the actions of this Supreme Court, but by the right wing forces that have funded the dark money to some of to to get some of these justices on the bench. In his new book, which is out today, The Scheme, How the Right Wing Used Dark Money to Capture the Supreme Court, the Rhode Island senator writes, we are in a crisis of judicial legitimacy a five-alarm fire fueled and stoked by anti-government billionaires whose anti-democratic, anti-consumer, anti-worker, anti-woman agenda is becoming increasingly hard to hide. But now that they have six justices, they really don't need to hide much. Joining me now is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. And Senator, thank you for saying it that way, writing it that way, because I think people see abortion as the be-all and end-all of these religious right-wing Justices, they are religious fanatics, in my opinion, but it it tends to cover up their other agenda, which is really pro-corporate, pro-wealth. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Dobbs, it's obviously a really flagrant uh, decision and very hard to justify. But then you look at the decisions that hurt regulators to help polluters. And then you look at the decisions like Shelby County that attacks voting rights of uh, minority populations. And then you look at the dark money cases like Citizens United and uh, AFPF, and you add the whole portfolio. And we've counted over 80 cases that are partisan, that have a big Republican donor interest involved, um, and where the big Republican donor interest won uh, by like 80 to zero. It's a complete route. It's not just Dobbs. And how do, first of all, who are some of these billionaires that are funding this, that are putting the dark money through? And how do they know that they're going to get a justice that will do their bidding? Well, it's hard to know because they do a very good job of hiding their identities through 501c3s, 501c4s, through donors' trusts. A lot of it can be traced back to the Koch brothers' political operation. Recently, a huge donation into this operation was traced back to a right-wing billionaire who was the primary funder of the climate denial organization Heartland Institute, a really classy group that compared climate scientists to the Unabomber, just to give you an idea. Um, So I think the important thing that I try to point out in this book is that this didn't just happen. This was done. And if you look at familiar concepts to people like regulatory capture, how a regulatory agency gets taken over by industry, or frankly, covert intelligence operations overseas, you begin to understand the scale and the method of what was done here. And by the way, no small thing. They spent over half a billion dollars accomplishing this. Yeah. And and let me talk. Let's talk really quickly about Leonard Leo. We've had you want to talk about him before. Uh, this is a man who has 
This is what he wants, his sort of wish list, restricting abortion rights in the states, ending affirmative action, defending religious groups accused of discriminating against LGBTQ people, opposing what he sees as liberal policies being espoused by corporations and schools, ending uh, electing Republicans everywhere and fighting Democratic efforts to slow climate change um, and also, you know, anything about exposing the money in politics. How did he get so powerful and how much should we worry about his influence? It started years ago when he knocked out Harriet Myers for the Supreme Court and installed Samuel Alito at the behest of very powerful right wing donors to force President Bush to change who his nominee was. And then, of course, under Trump, he was behind the so-called Federalist Society list and helped Trump or told Trump uh, what individuals to put on. He did this on behalf of big, big, big dark money donors. He is the spider, if you will, at the center of this dark money web that he has been weaving for years and years. And he's built up a lot of credibility with creepy right wing billionaires because he's been able to succeed where their other political efforts have failed. Is there any way to stop this court from implementing this agenda? And is, in your view, is expanding the court the answer? I think the first thing we need to do is get a lot more transparency at the court. Uh, I've already filed legislation to put the justices under term limits. Uh, I think the key, though, is to help the American people understand what took place at the court and why these bizarre decisions are coming out. Once you've made the case to the American people for what the problem is at the court, then I think they'll be more amenable to a broader range of solutions. But step one, like any good lawyer, make your case. And that's what I try to do in this book. Uh, and it, the book is out today. I think it's really important that people understand, as you said, how we got to this place. Uh, so and you are the best at this. And we, we love having you on because you always are giving us the scoop on it. Uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. The book is called The Scheme and it is out today. Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And up next, no matter how much he wishes that it was so, Donald Trump, he is a regular guy. He is not above the law. Despite his attempts to avoid it, a judge is ordering him to sit down for a deposition tomorrow in a defamation lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll, one of the many women, many, who say Trump sexually assaulted them. We'll be right back. No other U.S. president has faced the legal peril that Donald Trump faces right now. But let's not forget the alleged sexual misconduct that dogged his presidency early on and which Trump has yet to be fully held accountable for. At least 25 women have accused Trump of rape, sexual assault or sexual harassment. Trump has denied the allegations, but will now have to face at least one of them. The case of E. Jean Carroll, a writer who said Trump raped her in the mid-1990s in a dressing room at the Bergdorf Goodman department store in New York. Here's Carroll describing the moment Trump entered that dressing room back when I interviewed her in 2019. So I walked in right in front of him and he shut the door and banged right against the wall. So immediately upon walking into that dressing right room, he attacked you? against the wall. Yeah. Like... I'm just going to love kissing this guy. Trump is scheduled to sit for a deposition tomorrow in a federal defamation lawsuit brought by Ms. Carroll, 
who alleges that Trump defamed her when he accused her of lying while trying to sell a book. Trump also said about Ms. Carroll, quote, she's not my type, a distinctly Trumpian form of misogyny where alleged rape is treated like a form of dating rather than a gross act of opportunistic violence. It's kind of Trump's thing. He also suggested these women were not attractive enough for assault. Take a look. You take a look. Look at her. Look at her words. You tell me what you think. I don't think so. I don't think so. When you looked at that horrible woman last night, you said, I don't think so. He went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go after. Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. Man. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. Hmm. Somebody explained to Trump that rape has never been about sex. Full stop. It is about power. And as we know from the Access Hollywood tape that should have sunk his campaign in 2016, Trump enjoyed the power that as a rich, famous man, he felt that he could do anything. That may not be the case anymore, as E. Jean Carroll prepares to sue Trump in New York state court under the Adult Survivors Act, a new law that lifted the statute of limitations on claims of rape and sexual abuse in the state. Good luck with that, Donald. That's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.